I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. If infrastructure is all that enables commerce and prosperity and our economy to function, what could be more fundamental than caregiving? Child yeah. access to childcare, access to elder care, support for people with disabilities. That is essential infrastructure that we've never, ever invested in, which is why we have all these black and brown women who are working in jobs where they can't survive, trying to live off of $17,000 a year without health care. The people who are currently doing it are exploited. Um, they're predominantly women of color. Uh, turnover is sky high in, in this industry because it's so brutally difficult. So what is the plan to transition from the current economy to the caring economy. Our big vision is something we call universal family care. One day we should have a fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us pay for childcare, long-term care, and paid family leave. Basically everything we need to take care of our families while we're working across the lifespan. It's like and a new version of social security. It is, exactly. This week on Yang Speaks, we have the incredible founder and visionary and activist, someone I admire so much on so many levels, Ai-jen Poo. And we're going to be talking about Georgia in part because her organization is getting out voters right now in Georgia as we speak. Thrilled for this conversation. And in addition, we're going to talk about Yang's potential in the cabinet. You don't want to miss this. Tune in. Andrew, if you were Secretary of Labor, what would you do? And I'll tie that to if someone else is Secretary of Labor, what should they be doing and what can they be doing? There is so much you can do at the Department of Labor. It's very exciting and fun. Uh, and I hope that the next Labor Secretary takes full advantage uh, of our needs and capacities to hopefully help dig us out of this hole uh, so we are down over 10 million jobs, at least, that we know of. And economists say that 42% of the jobs that we've lost will never return. Uh, now, the Department of Labor spends billions of dollars on education and training programs to try and connect people back to opportunities. Uh, some of those programs are working better than others, but we certainly need much, much more of this. So I would pour fuel on any company, organization, community college that is reconnecting people to jobs and opportunities. Uh, I would call it race to a million jobs and just come in and say, look, like, what are you doing? What's that? You hired 500 pipe fitters uh, for these construction sites and projects. 
what is the actual need for pipe fitters in this environment? And if it's 5,000, then say, wait, what do you need then? Well, you need resources to recruit uh, and enlist and train and outfit. Um, because a lot of these organizations that I talk to, uh, they're doing great work, but they can't grow to the extent that they want. There's another organization that I love called Kedzie Academy, uh, and they're taking typically high school grads uh, and training them to be uh, engineers and uh, tech employees. Uh, they're doing it at $20,000 a pop, uh, which is an incredible value because you're seeing a massive surge in income among the folks that go through this program. Uh, so I talked to the folks at Kedzie and said, what are your bottlenecks? Um, and they said, look, right now, uh, we actually could be doing much more than we're doing, but um, people don't know about us. So we actually spend a lot of money on customer acquisition uh, and we don't have limitless funds. And so the question is, well, if the Department of Labor were to give you a grant of a certain amount of money, could you grow enrollment significantly? Could you train and place more people in the tech industry? And they were like 100% yes. So we should be going around identifying opportunities like this uh, particularly if they're in communities and community colleges, and then make grants, loans, have prizes, matching grants, uh, have this team of people scouring the country just trying to help folks who are creating jobs grow. Uh, and that would be, to me, job number one. Let me ask you this. When you were running for president, you ripped apart government retraining programs and things like that. So what is different about Andrew doing this? Um, is it that you don't have like people to give favors for and like bullshit programs you're funding or what, what, what makes it more effective in your end? What you want to do is you don't want to have a fiction that, uh, that you yourself can create jobs unless you just pay people then, and the government can do that. You know, I mean, that's a role of government. <laughs> but that's not what we're describing here. What you do is you find uh, an organization or company or school that is already demonstrating success in creating jobs. And you say, look, I'm going to be your growth capital. Um, like, I'm not going to administer this thing. I essentially become the friendly source of, uh, yeah, the friendly source of capital that tries to max out your scale as quickly as possible and does it in a way that works for your operation. That's a very different animal than showing up to a group of unemployed factory workers and say, hey, we're going to retrain you because you don't have any guarantee that there's a job waiting for them at the other end. And those programs have not typically been very successful. Uh, you wish that they were. So what you want to do is you don't want to try and create success. You want to find success and then you want to pour fuel on it. So that's one thing I would I would do. Another thing would be to establish a future core of young people who are having trouble getting a foothold in the economy and then connect them to uh, infrastructure, to green jobs, to elder and adult care, to forest care. I mean, we need so many new park rangers if we were going to try and head off these uh, forest fires, to veterans uh, services, to government and public service. Uh, and then... Uh, put them in position where they actually have, let's call it a year uh, of experience in these fields and then can get connected to a long-term job if they find that it's a fit. Um, there's a massive need on both sides right now because you have a lot of young people who are dislocated uh, and you have tons of needs. Uh, I would want to invest in vocational training and education, where something I said on the trail all the time, 
is that only 6% of American high school seniors are in any kind of apprenticeship or vocational training. In Germany, that's over 50%. I mean, look at that gulf. Um, so maybe we can't get up to 50%, but can we get up to 15%? Any progress there is, um, is good, right? Yeah, any progress there would be enormous. You know, I'd want to update the Bureau of Labor Statistics reporting um, because right now they don't know what's going on with the gig economy. They don't know what's going on with the green economy or the caregiving economy. They don't have uh, these things actually very well laid out. Um, I, I've looked at the data. Like, you know, they don't really uh, break it out in that way. The gig economy is a bit of a black box. Like, you know, the studies that are out there um, uh, are uh, privately commissioned a lot of time and um, inconclusive. Uh, I would get away from this headline unemployment rate. I would use the U6 rate instead of the U3, which is what we hear of. That includes. Ooh, could you make the American scorecard as Secretary of Labor? You know, that's more the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is under Commerce. But Labor could do at least the labor component of it. Uh, so you you could update the measurements in a way that would, uh, I think, be very powerful and emphasize things like labor force participation rate, which is more telling than. Um, than the U3 headline unemployment rate in many of these contexts. That that would make me very, very happy. Um, one thing that would also make me incredibly happy is trying to uh, enforce actions against folks who are abusing this independent contractor designation. And I understand, I've run, I've run a business, but uh, the economic incentives to say everyone's an, an independent contractor is sky high because then you don't have to pay benefits, you don't have to give them health care. And we know that employers are abusing this. And on one hand, I almost don't blame you uh, because that's where all your incentives are. But on the other hand, you know, we need to start treating people better and having better conversations about like whether someone truly works for your company uh, or if they're truly an independent contractor. So this is the funnest thing in the world, Zach. You know, like some of the highest profile abusers of this designation, <laughs> Vince McMahon of the WWE uh, and Dana White of the UFC. They, they call their performers and, uh, and uh, athletes uh, independent contractors, even though they're controlling all aspects of their behavior in many contexts. Like WWE performers can't even... Uh, go on Twitch or Cameo, and anytime they breathe the word union, they get fired. Uh, that's true of both the WWE and the UFC, and that's illegal. So if you're the, the, the Secretary of Labor, you can actually go in and say, wait a minute, how the heck are you controlling every aspect of their behavior if they're an independent contractor? Uh, and then if you make them employees, you help them unionize. I mean, that's like a massive game changer. Or an association, in MMA's case, for wrestlers, they should definitely have a union or join a union. Uh, for MMA, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, I would do everything I can to encourage portable benefits programs uh, that move around uh, independent of work because that's just the reality of the 21st century economy. Uh, I would try to put resources to work to help facilitate interstate migration and lower licensing requirements for everything from hairdressers to medical professionals. I would try and make it, you'll love this one, Zach. This is right up your alley. So there was like a, 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 a fight over the fiduciary duties of, financial advisors, whether they have responsibilities to you as the uh, saver um, and to disclose fees, not have conflicts of interest, et cetera, et cetera. And believe it or not, the Department of Labor actually put forward this rule because they enforce ERISA, which is the, um, the savings um, and pension plans. Uh, and there was a bit of a legal fight as to whether uh, you could have this rule um, and we should have this rule. It would save savers $30 billion a year. Uh, you know, if, if you took out all the, like the, 
uh, kind of extra fees that financial advisors are slipping in there. Um, and and they, they're often getting kickbacks. I mean, you know, just got to know that that's happening. Um, is that close to home for you, Zach? Very. I always thought you should have Similar to the way that doctors get malpractice, get sued for malpractice, I think financial advisors should have that same responsibility. Particularly, you, I mean, like there, there's the horror stories we would see, and they're pretty, they're not as rare as it this sounds. But like the husband dies, or the main breadwinner dies, and the lack of spending or insurance or planning leaves the wife and kids, or the the you know the homemaker and the children with nothing or pound mountains of debt without knowing about it or all these like liabilities and no clue like to me that's malpractice um on the financial advisor's part because some of the stuff gets so yeah. complicated it, it can really screw up lives you know and it, it's certainly costing us billions of dollars uh it's making the financial advisory industry richer but you know is that really the purpose uh you know the purpose should be to facilitate retirement savings and the rest of it uh i would start a commission on ai and autonomous vehicles to figure out the prospective impact of employment. I mean, and, and that's not just truck drivers. I mean, Google just announced that they have AI that can do the work of call center workers and you have 2 million call center workers in the United States. Uh, so you know, there are massive trends coming down the pike. Um, I would pilot a four-day work week uh, and have companies sign up for that. Uh, and Shake Shack and Microsoft have already experimented with that and then released data. I mean, if you have enough uh, name brand companies uh, operating in a four day work week. I mean, that could really start a movement that would benefit us all. There's so many fun things you can do out of labor. Uh, it was it, it was fun researching this, and hopefully, the next uh, Secretary of Labor takes advantage of what the department can do. Uh, and I would argue, no matter what, uh, Congress needs to increase the funding to the Department of Labor. Um, because we're in an historic crisis right now. And what is it? It's in large part a jobs crisis. And where should you be putting money? You should be putting money into people's hands, into small businesses, uh, uh, to cities and states. But you should also be putting it into the Department of Labor because uh, if there's an agency that should theoretically be creating jobs and helping, uh, again, pour fuel on efforts that are doing so, it should be the Department of Labor. And having the same budget when you're in a jobs crisis as you do during uh, flush times does not make any sense. So the only other thing I'll ask is $15 minimum wage, we get hit on it, or we talk about it a lot. We prefer universal basic income is more flexible and it's mobile and not tied to the job. But uh, like for all the workers suffering now for lower pay, is there something you would like, how would you handle that given, like, if, you know, if you're Secretary of Labor, maybe UBI is not getting passed. Would you explore a minimum wage or, or something in that regard? Well, the, the tough part is that uh, the Secretary of Labor does not have control over minimum wage regs. It does have control over minimum wage reg enforcement. So you can come down on employers that are, frankly, keeping a lot of hours off books and being like, oh, yeah, we, we paid you this much. Like, you can enforce that stuff. I certainly am for a higher minimum wage, but that, that's not something uh, the Labor Department can do itself. Got it. So, similar for paid, paid family leave, which is something I'm also very passionate about. Um, and uh, you can fund things in that direction, but um, it, it's primarily uh, something that you'd want to come out of Congress. Uh, you could work with companies that are doing it already and try and expand it. Right. So there you have it. Andrew Yang's thoughts on Secretary of Labor. I think you'd be a fascinating, you're kind of a regulator is what that is, regulator and lawsuit bringer in chief. <laughs> well, well, there, there, there are two aspects to it. One is trying to enforce uh, the laws on the books 
Uh, and they're really unenforced in many, many environments. We all know that. You know, it's like, you know that there are all these people abusing independent contractors, like uh, um, even minimum wage, which seems freaking incredible given how low it is. Uh, but then there are other things that the department does too that are actually growth oriented, where uh, we spend billions of dollars on programs right now uh, that are meant to try and connect people to the economy. Um, young people, like there's a program called Youth Build, where we take high school dropouts and put them on construction sites to build housing for uh, like low income families. Um, uh, so programs that already exist like that, uh, that we need more of in different segments of the economy uh, for green jobs, for caring jobs, for tech jobs in particular, because the opportunities in each of those fields are millions of jobs. I just think it'd be great to have someone thinking outside the box in some of these traditional roles. You know, if you get someone in there that's just going to go status quo, country's on fire. So that won't help. Um, it's just plain and simple. Care where you are, Democrat, Republican, country's on fire, you need to fix it. You need to put fire out. And one person who's known what people are going through, what workers are going through for so long is Ai-jen Poo. She's the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And uh, there probably is not a more overlooked group than domestic workers in the country. You know, the, these are so often uh, women, women from immigrant communities uh, uh, who are kind of invisible. Uh, and iGen has done amazing uh, work organizing and fighting for national domestic workers uh for years, she got a MacArthur Genius Grant um, a, a wow. number of years ago. I know, like you know, we're all like, "Whoa, you got a MacArthur Genius Grant!" A bit, like you're uh, like Don. You've been like knighted as a genius if you get that award. Generally speaking, there's some I disagree with, but generally it's pretty pretty accurate. For an activist to get that is a yeah, very very big deal. Uh, and and her organization again is helping on the ground in Georgia. I've been a fan of iGens for a long time. Uh, we actually did some work together in like a relief project a little while ago. Um, so here to talk about her work, what we're doing in Georgia, uh, and what the future of labor looks like for a lot of people in this country. iGen Poop. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button 
and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash yang to learn more. Hello, welcome everyone. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast Ijen Poo, who is the senior advisor to Care in Action, which is an advocacy organization for domestic workers around the country, award-winning author, Time 100 alumna, MacArthur Genius Grant award-winning organizer. Uh, Ijen, it's so great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. And thanks for everything you're doing to save our democracy. Thank you for everything you're doing. So people who've been keeping up with us know that uh, I'm here in Georgia. You can tell by the peach. And uh, we're trying to support organizations who are doing work on the ground, who've been getting out the vote um, this whole time. Uh, And Care in Action is one of those organizations where you Mm -hmm. all have been organizing workers uh, and voters here in Georgia. That's right. Um, Actually, the domestic workers movement has a really long history and deep roots in Georgia, dating all the way back to 1881, when the first washerwomen, black women went on strike to raise wages and won wage increases for thousands of workers to the 1970s, when um, the incredible civil rights leader Dorothy Bolden founded the National Domestic Workers Union. And by the way, when she founded the Domestic Workers Union, she had the only two requirements for joining were that you had to be a domestic worker and you had to be registered to vote. So civic engagement and voting rights and voter participation has always been in kind of the DNA of our movement. And we've been building really intentionally there as a movement since 2013, focused on organizing black domestic workers who are working incredibly hard and still not able to make ends meet, still don't have access to a safety net or job security or even a single paid sick day. And we've been organizing to try to improve conditions. And in 2018, we got deeply involved in building the power of um, women of color voters like domestic workers in our democracy and to shape the future of Georgia. And we were so proud to um, be one of the largest field operations in support of Stacey Abrams' historic campaign for governor. Yes. And we focused on hard to reach women of color voters who are considered so-called low propensity voters. We see them as high potential, high value voters who can really transform our electorate to be um, much more reflective of who we are as a country. So for people who are thinking, wow, so glad Georgia went blue uh, you have Karen Action to thank because they've been working on it for seven years. <laughs> you know what I mean, like this stuff does not happen overnight. Well, that is true. But I have to say that black women really led the way in Georgia and have always really led the way in Georgia. And we oh, certainly are... not not your organization exclusively, but that there have been people like you working on it, uh, like Stacey Abrams. Uh, and, Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, other orgs. So this stuff does not happen um, quickly or magically. It happens because people have been in communities doing the work uh, uh, this whole time. So I, right. I'm a huge admirer of yours in large part because of your origin story. So I just wanted to, to geek out a little bit 
because um, you and I have a lot in common. I don't know how if you know how much we have in common. So check it out. I'm the the uh, child of Taiwanese American immigrants. Uh, my dad had a PhD in physics. Uh, my mom had a master's in math. They came here. There was this period in the '60s when the U.S. was letting in. Uh, Taiwanese grad students, and so mm -hmm. they came here. They they met each other, and then they had me and my brother um, in the seventies. Uh, I think you and I might even have been born the same year. Uh, and then I went to Phillips Exeter uh, and graduated <laughs> in ninety two, uh, and then wow. I wound up going to uh, Columbia for law school, where you went undergrad. Um, so the the thing that blows <laughs> my mind about you, Igen, is that you. And I, I think, you know, have those things in common. I think pretty much everything I just stated, um, <laughs> <laughs> like it could have been you talking. Um, but then but then you did something that was so unusual, certainly for our community, really for anyone, because, you know, there aren't, there aren't many people like you. Um, so you have this education that primes you for doing, frankly, you know, like what a lot of our peers did out of a place like Columbia, which would be, uh, medicine, finance, consulting, business, tech, in my case, law, um, and the rest of it. But then you took a very, very sharp detour <laughs> and became a labor organizer. So I would love to hear how the heck that happened. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I had no idea we had that many experiences in common. That's incredible. Um, Thank you for naming all of that. We have lots to talk about. Um, but in terms of how I became a labor organizer, when I was in college at Columbia, I one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Columbia was it was in New York City. And the city and its energy and its diversity in communities and the size of the Asian immigrant community in New York were some of the reasons why I wanted to be there. And I started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter for Asian immigrant women. And I could still speak Mandarin, so it was actually a value in terms of being a bilingual hotline volunteer. Um, and, um, and a lot of the calls were not just about the struggles of surviving violence or abuse, but a lot of them were about how hard it was to just survive as a mom, um, as someone working in a low-wage service job, you know, I would hear from women who were domestic violence survivors who were working in um, nail salons or doing domestic work and long, long hours and still not able to pay the rent um, or, you know, cover the expenses related to school for kids. And I just remember thinking, like, how could it be that there's so many people who work so hard and do everything right and survive so much and still can't make a decent living and take care of the people they love? And that kind of led me down a path of trying to figure out how we make work better for women, especially women in our communities, women of color. Um, women who are really struggling at the bottom of the economy where we just don't value so much work that's actually essential. There are a lot of people who, frankly, volunteer at nonprofits when they're in college, um, but then they don't make a career out of it in the same way that you have. So like the, the thing that, uh, again, I was wanting, because I'm genuinely curious, I think you can tell, <laughs> is um, so you're an undergrad, you're volunteering downtown. Um, and then like, how are you spending your summers? Like, and what is your first job, um, when you graduate from school? Uh, and also like, how is your family taking this in? But I, I'd love to start really like with, 
um, what your college career looked like and then what, what your first job was. Yeah. So in college, I volunteered at the New York Asian Women's Shelter and then also at the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, as you mentioned, where we started the Women Workers Project that led to um, lots of the other work to organize domestic workers. Um, and then I also on campus was involved in um, a campaign in 1996 to win ethnic studies um, on campus at Columbia. So um, in the spring of 1996, there was kind of a multiracial coalition of students who came together to fight for an ethnic studies department. And the combination of the volunteering on campus or the volunteering outside of campus in the community and the work to try to change how things worked on campus and working across race it was really transformative to me. Like I, the fact that we actually waged a campaign, we took over buildings, we went on hunger strike, we did all kinds of stuff and we won. There's now a center for the study of ethnicity and race at Columbia because of the activism that we did. And I think I got kind of addicted to winning. Like <laughs> I just got really excited about the fact that You're you like, could actually- You're like, I won for one. What else could I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of was like, hey, you could get just like regular people together, get together and fight for something and make some real change that can affect future generations. And I think I kind of caught the bug, but I didn't know that you could make it a career, to be honest, Andrew. Yeah, like, I was exactly. Like, yeah, no, there was no, I did not think of it as a career. I thought maybe I would be a writer. Um, uh, I was tutoring at the Borough of Manhattan Community College um, as a, you know, in the summers and then after I graduated to help people prepare for the writing assessment test. Um, I thought I would like get some kind of a job to pay the bills while I wrote. Um, I sure, also maybe worked... in publishing or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also worked in restaurants. I was waited tables and I worked as a bartender. Um, and I was I a think... busboy at a Chinese restaurant in upstate New York, the Imperial Walk. Were you really? Uh, yeah. I was. How old were you? When, when did you do that? I was in my teens. Uh, my Chinese was too shoddy for me to translate orders, uh, so I couldn't be a waiter. <laughs> I was like, in some ways, because that's what you had to do to get the orders to the kitchen. You had to like, you know, write in Chinese because the cooks don't uh, speak English. So that, so they were um, anyway. So yeah, did, we had, had that experience in common too. It sounds like though you were. It sounds like you were further up the server food chain than I was, because your Chinese is, sounds like it's better. Well, I think my grandparents raised me, so they taught me Mandarin as my first language. But, you know, when you're mainly a child learning a language, so I feel like I have like a 10-year-old's level of vocabulary. <laughs> I, I don't know if people know this about me, Ai-jen, but I got left back in Chinese school over and over again. So like the, the folks, Ooh. like the, the the kids next to me were just like, <laughs> like I was getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and like the, the class always staying the same size, like this overgrown third grader at oh, no. <laughs> Chinese school. Um, I had a similar experience in Taiwan because when I went and spent summers in Taiwan with my grandparents, they sent me to school because the school year lasts much longer in Taiwan. And so I was a giant second grader in a kindergarten class and like what? kids wet their pants during nap time. And I was so embarrassed to be like a huge kid with all these so-called babies. And yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, so that, that sounds like some 
tiger parent. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't because they just wanted to see family. But it's like this American school year not long enough. Let's like bring you back to Taiwan and just like <laughs> plant you locally and just keep that school year going. Um, that's a, that's some funny stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I like I didn't even know you could do that. Um, how many summers <laughs> did you have this extended school experience? Was it just second grade or did it happen later too? No, I was, I went, I spent every summer of my childhood, I think until maybe fourth grade in, in Taiwan with my grandparents. Um, wow. When you were yeah. very close to them, that's beautiful. Yes. Uh, yes. Very, very close. And my grandmother in particular is like my hero. She just passed away recently, actually. Um, oh, I'm in sorry. April. Mm-hmm. Yeah, May. my my grandmother sorry. as well. Um, oh, in, really? In Did Taiwan. you lose her? Oh, I'm yeah, so sorry. Yeah, last year while I was running uh, for president, uh, my my grandmother passed. Um, uh, so, I'm so, sorry so we had that in common that. too. No, it, it it's it's fine. I um you know like um my family was sad for a, a bit. I was more concerned about my mom. Um, my my children didn't really uh, my. Older son had met her once, um, so it's not like they were close to her. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, It is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So let's fast forward again to when you were coming out of college. Um, So you're waiting tables, you're doing uh, various things, you're a bartender. Um, And so, like, how did you figure out that activism was an actual career choice after you'd had this massive victory your senior spring? I didn't really know that it was. Um, we, uh, at when I was working, when I was volunteering at CAV and we started the Women Workers Project, the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, we started the Women Workers Project as kind of an all-volunteer committee um, to do outreach to women working in different low-wage service jobs and to try to organize for better conditions. And um, we were all volunteer. And then um, we realized that we needed somebody full time who would get up every day and really be thinking about how to move this work forward and follow through and keep in touch with the workers we were meeting. And um, and we put together a job description. We applied for some grant money to fund the position. 
And I really didn't think that I would do that. But when nobody applied for the job, <laughs> everyone in the volunteer committee convinced me to do it. Um, so I started out doing it part time for a while, and then it became full time. And I think what I'll say is that even then, um, I didn't think of it as my life's path. I just kind of, I think I followed the women that I met and organized with along the way. And was so moved by the incredible courage and resilience of the women that I would meet in the work. And I just kind of took their lead and kept going. And, um, and we would win along the way. And that also kept me going. <laughs> wow. So you're kind of, you're tutoring, you're uh, um, bartending, and then you're volunteering. And then the volunteerism gets to a point where it's like, hey, someone should actually start doing this uh, like part-time. So do you remember who the original grantors were to fund the, this part-time and then full-time position? I think the New York Women's Foundation and the Ms. Foundation, maybe. Um, the North Star Fund. It was a Fund. while ago, obviously. And yeah, like some, pretty... some of the grassroots social justice foundations in New York City really important early supporters for seed projects like that. So yeah. listen to this philanthropists and funders, you end up funding these, uh, these positions. And then sometimes they end up uh, mushrooming into these world changing activists doesn't happen. You know, if you don't fund it, who knows, maybe iGen is, uh, is uh, doing something else right now. <laughs> you, know, you never know. So philanthropists got to get in there early. Uh, so, <laughs> so you're working um, uh, uh, eventually a full-time role mm -hmm. um, for CAV. And then you wound up transitioning into uh, starting your own um, or organizing really domestic workers and starting an organization to that effect. Um, what is that arc like? Because, I, you know, I can see the volunteer. I can see, okay, no one else wants to do it. So everyone's like, I, Jen, you do it. And, and one of the things that happens in these environments, it's a little bit like a school project where responsibility ends up falling on whoever the most competent person is. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if you have like a class project and there are five of you and then there's one person who's on top of it and the other four, you know, not as good. <laughs> so that everyone's like, ooh, person who's on top of it. Let's like, so I can, I can imagine that happening and I can imagine, um, you know, you doing it full time. But then there was like this entire arc where you go from part time to full time to actually starting your own organization, which is a very, very big deal. Um, and this, I, I'd imagine, happened, this arc transpired, it seems like, throughout your 20s. Mm. Well, one thing that your listeners should really know is that none of these things are because of singular individuals um, or processes. And at least in my experience, I've been organizing for 25 years, and it has always been a collective effort. And maybe my name is on paper as the staff person or as the executive director or as a co-founder, but it takes um, groups of us, squads. It's always a squad effort, I find. Um, and I'm sure you found this too with your campaign, Andrew, is like, it took like, there was just like an essential core group every time to really take the work to the next level. And, um, and that's, 
really, I think the story of the domestic workers movement that I've been a part of is that it was like a group of Filipino domestic workers who decide to take the project multiracial. And then a group of Caribbean women who decide to really expand, strengthen the work in New York City together with Filipinas and South Asian women and Latina uh, workers. And then a group of New York workers then get together with a group of workers from LA, DC, Seattle, San Francisco, and then we launched the National Alliance. We had 50 co-founders of the National Alliance in 2007. And then a group of us, you know, in the domestic workers movement, after the 2016 elections, you know, a bunch of domestic workers said, we need an advocacy platform. We have to be able to use every tool at our disposal to make this democracy, to save our democracy and to make it work for us. And so that's how Care in Action was formed. And it was never, ever me. I, I'm often the fundraiser, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but um, there's so much leadership and so much collective leadership behind every effort and every breakthrough. And, and so many of the people who made this moment in the movement possible, their names that you'll never hear of, but who were absolutely essential to the work. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So servant leaders like yourself, so you get to... to an organization uh, or a group of people and you see the need. I mean, the, the need you're trying to address is obviously monumental, uh, like the um, mistreatment of and um, systematic marginalization of domestic workers. I mean, you know, like it, it's very, very uh, pervasive. It's like, you know, it's political, it's economic, it's human, like it, it, it's everything. Um, so you, you get, and I, I can relate to some of these experiences, uh, and I would never put myself anywhere near um, you in terms of activism, um, but I did start a nonprofit. Uh, and one of the things that happens when you start a nonprofit, if you are, like, let's call it like the founder, the co-founder, whatever it happens to be, um, it really does translate to fundraiser in chief, you know what I mean? And, and like, <laughs> like yeah, your job is to raise that money. When I started this nonprofit, I thought the idea for the nonprofit spoke for itself. Uh, and no one needed to hear about Andrew Yang so much. But then someone that worked uh, with me at the nonprofit said, Andrew, in order for the organization to raise money like this, like Andrew Yang needs to be this or higher. Like you need to see anything that accrues to you 
as good for the organization. And if no one knows who you are, cares about you, the organization is not actually going to succeed. Um, and this is someone who was working with me at the organization. I really needed that boost. Uh, thank you, Mike Tarullo, for, for saying this to me. Um, but I, I needed that boost to be like, okay, so like, I, I guess it's okay if I show up to these conferences uh, and uh, sit on a panel or show up to stuff and, and try and interject myself or elevate my own profile um, because it makes me a more effective fundraiser. Uh, and the fact is, if you're serious about trying to start an organization or uh, raise money, that stuff's very, very useful. So that was like a very big shift for me because you don't want it to be about you. You want it to be about the work uh, and uh, the the folks who are actually doing the work very often. Um, uh, but the reality of raising money is like, you know, it's very helpful for people to, to actually think, oh, yeah, I saw that person at that conference. Or in your case, you've won like every award in the book. <laughs> and, and there's part of you, I'm sure, that's like, uh, who cares about the awards? But then, uh, but you know, the awards end up opening doors for you so that, uh, you know, what started out as a meeting with like a funder at this level, like eventually becomes a meeting at this level. Yeah. No, it's it's a really interesting thing because... I don't think any of us get into this work to be on panels or go on TV, or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or That's even really funny. My even, dream is to be on a panel at some social innovation <laughs> conference, you know, and um, and I'm an introvert. So the idea of going on MSNBC is like horrifying for me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you do it in the service of the work and then you do realize that um, that visibility is really important, not for you, but for the work and the goals of your work. And um, and but it's still kind of conflicted. And I remember um, when I learned that I was going to be a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, the Genius Award for anyone who doesn't know. Anyway, continue. <laughs> my first reaction was like i don't this no <laughs> this is not this is not right um you know i'm a part of a movement and uh to single me out the if there's any genius here it's in the collective and um so you know i remember feeling really conflicted and weird and exposed and and i think um where I've come is that, you know, if you're using your platform in the service of good, that in some ways you're leaving power on the table by not, you know, oh, taking yeah. up that space. Especially for someone like you now, it's like, you know, like you now have the ability to access platforms and resources that would be immensely helpful for the movement in, in a way that frankly it's like very very tough for someone else to do that hasn't built that up over time yeah um, but I but I actually uh, have this in common with you too I Jen is that I also am an introvert uh, and are you really yeah yeah I you know I got tested in the rest of it but also I know for myself uh, you know my favorite thing to do is to read um, mm. like I was a very bookwormy kid um, mm -hmm. and running for office is certainly like the opposite of that activity. Uh, and you know, like for me, the campaign was about this set of ideas that I wanted to put out there. And I was always mm -hmm. like, look, like if, if we get something like universal basic income passed and everyone just forgets about Andrew Yang, I would be thrilled. Like you can, you know, and, and it's one of the things that's weird about me is that, uh, like it, it's like you where it's like, I see it as a tool. 
-hmm. like, um, and I've got like tools to try and reach goals and like make positive things happen. But I really don't care <laughs> about uh, about what many people would regard as like uh, you know the the trappings of a public life or mm -hmm. whatnot. That mm -hmm. if you just like left me alone to like chill out with the family and like read books and maybe write some stuff. I mean, I I, I do enjoy writing too. So you know, it's and it's helpful too on that side. It's like there are many awesome writers who. Uh, have a hard time getting book deals because like they don't have public profiles which right. you know is that is that correct or accurate it's like well um you know it, it stinks uh and i can very well see myself as one of those people um because I, I was the awkward introverted uh asian kid growing up um and most people i don't know like regard me as that now because at this point now i've got like this uh different set of public facing tools, I guess, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where uh, when you talk about cringing at the idea of going on MSNBC, it's like, I actually pop up on TV kind of on the regular now because it's sort of like, a, you know, like, like, like something I signed up for, which also, let me say, was freaking shocking to me um, because going on those cable news hits was one of my least favorite uh, aspects of campaigning. Mm -hmm. um, I was genuinely stunned when CNN called me like the day after I dropped out. It was like, hey, you want to come on, on, on TV? And like, I was like, really? <laughs> anyway, so, so there's a, so a very long-winded way of saying um, I think uh, you and I have the introversion uh, thing in common. So I understand like how, how you have to push through it all the time. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. And I imagine in your campaign, you had to push through a lot of um, different kinds of, I mean, I can't think of a more extroverted experience than running for president of the United States, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I'm curious, how did you re regenerate your energy through the campaign? Afterwards? Or, yeah, or no, during. or even during. Like, how did you? Because I know for me, if I'm having a very externally oriented day, like a lot of public speaking or events or something, I really need the time afterwards to just kind of be quiet and do my yoga or whatever. What do you do? Well, I think my team understood me. Uh, where like I, I would go give a town hall and be like, yeah, and we're gonna like do this and you know humanize the economy and like let's let's. Uh, change the world and I get back in the car and then all of a sudden it'd be like you know like leave me alone <laughs> like, like my, my team would just like let me that's um, great uh, yeah like like let me and and in some cases the way I would recharge would be like uh you know I might um sit there and silently read something um you know I, I might read something that would be frankly unrelated to politics like I might like read a sports article or something like that like like that might be a way that I could uh recharge mm -hmm. between events even because in many cases I like you know the car would stop and I'd have another event and then someone would be go to my ear and say like okay this is the town you're in <laughs> mm -hmm. like 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 these are this is the person who's introducing you like yeah they're kind of like variables that I would need um uh, it wasn't easy Igen though like I, it, it became um it, it was wild in that I pushed myself further than I had ever had to before. Um, and I, I started running in like late 2017, but no one paid any attention. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the spotlight was very bright uh, in late 2019, uh, early 2020. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, so I had to develop adaptations I never thought I would. Uh, like I consider myself very 
self-sufficient. I like doing my own thing more so than having a, a group of people around me, like a coterie or attendants or staff or whatever. Uh, but then down the stretch and the campaign, I had like a giant retinue and uh, like doing everything. And it was, it was like so uh, uncomfortable, but it just mm-hmm. made a lot more sense. Um, just like a basic thing where, like I would get to a hotel room and like the hotel room had been like advanced, which means like my luggage was there and the rest of it. Like, you know, I'd spent like a year and a half just like <laughs> hauling my own luggage and doing this and that. And then all of a sudden like you get there and it's like some genie came in and like, <laughs> like you know, put put the room together. And, you know, and there's a period where you're like, well, this sucks. Um, but then like there's a period also where it's like, well, I guess this is like how we have to function if I'm going to, you know, do five of these town halls like tomorrow and not have to think about certain things. Um, so it, it really was what some of what you're describing, like the, those extroversion days taken to the extreme, like mm-hmm. ramped up to 11 or 12, like past any sane limit, <laughs> mm. <laughs> honestly. But I, I had the the goal in mind the whole time was like, I have a chance to potentially accelerate the end of poverty. Like, so, so there was like never, you know, it's like you get up and just be like, just do whatever must be done because, uh, like I felt like there was an opportunity that I might never see again, um, and, and like I already felt like there were so many people who'd invested their hopes and aspirations for a better life in what we were doing. Um, so I, I felt all of this energy, um, responsibility, um, opportunity, and then when the campaign ended, it, it was a little bit like uh, like I'd been running on this incredible kind of crowdsourced energy that then mm. um that that then left me <laughs> and mm-hmm. i didn't leave me in the sense that you know people still seem to you know like me and and, and whatnot which i appreciate thank you yang yang love you um <laughs> but like that but 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 that you know it was a very big change um and then the downshift was so weird uh you know like because you, you were more extroverted than you ever had to be uh and and then i kind of had this strange transition into um uh into like being on TV sometimes but not all the time like uh like I didn't have the same campaign uh team around me all the time I was a public figure for the first time so if I just walked around the streets of New York people would be like hey Andrew Yang and I was like well <laughs> like hey. this is new and weird <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> like, like like this is And strange. a lot of responsibility too as the first API candidate um to reach the kind of momentum that you had. I mean, that's, it was, I'm sure that must have been challenging in terms of the expectations. Well, one thing I haven't talked about a lot, Ijen, but I've been reflecting on a little bit more, um, is that I, I think as an Asian American man or boy, you know, in the past or whatnot, I gen- genuinely thought I had this kind of invisibility cloak that I could put on anytime I wanted. Uh, where if you like walk into a deli or a restaurant, like no one pays much attention to you if like you you're not really trying to be, um, you know, generating attention. Uh, and so I was so used to that anonymity that I think, frankly, it was like ramped up by being Asian. You know, it's like mm-hmm. like I think you know maybe maybe everyone thinks they can just blend into the woodwork, but I certainly mm-hmm. felt that to like I think a slightly higher degree because I just don't think people pay that much attention to. <laughs> since when you were mm-hmm. like walking around mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and and so the the first time someone recognized me when I was not wearing anything related to the campaign where I just had like you know sweats and a hoodie on 
Um, and someone was like, hey, Andrew Yang. I was like, you know who I am? Like the whole thing just discombobulated <laughs> me so much. Uh, and then even after it happened, I was like, yeah, that, that, that person must have been weird. <laughs> um, so so the, the visibility was something that I like I never anticipated. Like, I, you know, it's funny, I ran for president and still never expected that to happen, which is very odd, given that, you know, you presume if you're going to be at least somewhat successful, like that might happen. <laughs> but, but like, I genuinely never expected it to. And um, was, um, was confused by the adjustment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember thinking, um, you know, as a fellow Asian American, I remember thinking, what an incredible responsibility um and like and like wow do you have a, I remember wondering like do you have a kitchen cabinet of other API leaders who you could consult on how to navigate it all because having to do that alone must have been really challenging and I, I remember I'll, I'll just be totally honest like some oh, of sure. the calls some of the calls you would make around like leaning into the math thing or talking <laughs> about math, being more American whatever. and raising you know wearing flags and things like that I just remember being like <laughs> oh no you know <laughs> like let's not um, reinforce stereotypes that could be really challenging but then I also understood that there was a really important um, need for you to claim your identity in a way that was authentic to you and um, and the responsibility of having to then think about representation of all of us in this role of you trying to just lead um, is one that's just fundamentally unfair and a reflection of white supremacy itself. Um, oh, wow. And so, well, I, well, I mean, that, that certainly lets me off the hook for a lot of things. Well, um, no, I'm not letting you off the hook here. I'm just saying, like, I know enough about how anti-Asian racism works that um, I know that you were in a really tough spot. And so... Yeah, there were many moments I wish I could have like called you up on the bat phone and been like, hey, Andrew, no, <laughs> let's not do this. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny, I did is that um, you somehow would have had to make those calls like b- before the fact. And I probably didn't even know I was going to do it before the fact. <laughs> so, so it would right. have been to try to insulate me from some decision I was going to make, you know, five minutes later. Uh, I mean, I, I have... Um, can I say uh, one thing, though, before you oh, yeah, continue, which is Please. that I think that it was also amazing to watch um, you become like a, as an organizer, right? As you like I watched your campaign early and then how it evolved and you became like a better and better campaigner like every day. You got sharper, you got stronger, you were just like, and it was kind of amazing to watch. Um, and oh, that moment you, when like you and your wife came out about autism and your experience with your child like that was so important and could have easily not happened and so I just think it was also very historic and so even if I had some disagreements along the way I was also like go you go you know, along the way as and, well. And this is before you knew that you and I had so much in common. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, well, well, I certainly appreciate it. And uh, 
Yeah, like that. I mean, I I genuinely feel like your arc and mine have been similar, uh, and I'm really inspired by you because I feel like, in like you know, like, like what I've gone through over this last period of time, um, it, like you've been in it for you said 25 years. Uh, and you started in in a, a line of work. Uh, I guess I'll return to something I, I was curious about earlier, which is like, what did your parents think about the fact that that, <laughs> that their daughter, like, uh, has been fighting for uh, domestic workers' uh, rights for this period of time? I mean, I, I assume now it's probably different than when you were in your twenties getting started. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure, it's different now. Um, I mean, I definitely. I I was really lucky that my parents were very understanding and my mother. Do you have, do you have siblings? I have a younger sister. Yeah. She's a filmmaker in Los Angeles. She's awesome. Wow. Neither of us, neither of us went into science or medicine. Um, and my parents were really supportive of us throughout. Um, I, I think wrapping their heads around how, how I was going to make a living. <laughs> was like a question um but like that that work pays <laughs> like question mark. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly like that's a job um but i think and and also what the job was like what is a community organizer what is you know um but i think that they knew they're both very caring individuals and justice minded and i think that they liked the fact that i was pursuing something that I was really passionate about and um, and both of them did the same and they're both incredibly passionate about their work and committed to it as like some real driving force higher purpose and I think they were glad that I found that for myself even if they had questions about livelihood issues <laughs> along the way um, I feel yeah. like you and your sister could have a competition as like which of us chose a more <laughs> Uh, financially impractical career path and then your sister's like what's that you're a community organizer i'm gonna go you one better independent <laughs> filmmaker <laughs> like maybe you gave her cover for your parents where, where she was like well i mean heck look at ijed like they can't be too bad if i become a <laughs> like a creative yeah no were your parents supportive of you <laughs> i mean my it's uh they were sad when I left the law because I, you know, I had a secure professional career and my parents were very happy about that. And then when I left to become an entrepreneur and a failed entrepreneur at that, and that was not easy for them. Uh, and, and then it became very confusing to them. I was always working on various startups uh, to, frankly, low degrees of success for a number of years. <laughs> so they were pretty sad about that. Um, they they became enthusiastic about my political run only after the fact. Like when I broached it to them, uh, they were not pumped about it, which was probably fairly sane of them. Um, I mean, and then later they became my biggest boosters. Uh, in the scheme of parents uh, and Asian parents in particular, my parents have been awesome. You know, that there was never any like uh, um, attempt to try and um, change my decision or path. There there was certain levels of concern. Um, exactly. but, but, but there was never like, uh, you know, you're making a mistake and, you know, I'm going to try and like drive you to do this and not this. Uh, I mean, one of the things I said when I left the law, I was like, look, I'm not going to ask you for a dime. So don't worry about it. It's my, my decision. And like, I'll handle the responsibility. Like the consequences will be mine and not yours. Maybe you can't brag about me to your friends anymore, but you know, you'll survive. <laughs> 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 was what I said to them. 
Um, which may, maybe it was a little obnoxious, but uh, my, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, so but I, in the scheme of things, I, my parents have been tremendous uh, and we've always had a very loving and communicative relationship, uh, even if they weren't thrilled with my choices. Yeah, that's great. We're both very lucky. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. One of the things I want to try and unpack is um, the scale of the mistreatment of domestic workers. Uh, and so here, here's the thing that happens. All right. So we all know I'm going around being like, hey, AI automation technology, it's going to like decimate you know, a lot of the most common jobs in the economy. And then a lot of people say, and this is dumb, I'm just saying this is the straw man, but I just want to explain how dumb it is. But people will be like, it's okay, because then we will have like a caring economy. And everyone will just like look out for each other and take care of the elderly and all will be human and glorious. And then I say, okay, I love that vision. And I'm all for that vision. But the people who are currently doing that work now uh, are underpaid, exploited, uh, really high turnover. Um, it's both emotionally and physically injurious. Uh, and and sometimes I share a story where I was like a home health care aide for uh, 15 minutes or so, uh, where, 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 where there was like an elderly person and we needed to like move them um, across the room. And I was just enlisted to help. And I was like, sure, you know, I'm like able-bodied person. Let's do this thing. Uh, and then we like moved uh, the elderly gentleman um, uh, across the room and my back hurt like immediately thereafter. It's like, I moved this person. I'd, I'd been doing it for all of 15 minutes. So, so when I say to the people who are positing this caring economy, it's like, Hey, FYI, the people who are currently doing it are exploited. Um, they're predominantly women of color, uh, turnover sky high in, in this industry because it's so brutally difficult. So what is the plan to transition from the current economy to the caring economy that does not involve a massive transferal of tens of billions of dollars a year? Like, uh, you know, <laughs> is, 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 that's like the question I pose them. Um, and uh, and it, it's frustrating to me because people just like traffic and abstraction so much. It's like, 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 do you believe in the caring economy? Like, yeah, we all believe in it. It's like, are you willing to invest in it in like a real way? Are you willing to treat the people who are currently doing it like at a certain level where they can actually live like sustainable lives and not um, be exploited left and right? You know, or, or it's like the folks who are like taking care of our grandparents, like don't have healthcare themselves. It's like, does that make sense to anyone? Like, uh, we're, we're just going to like rely upon um, the, this totally. class of people that we're just going to pretend doesn't exist. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm so glad you brought this up because we actually do have a plan. Um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris announced a 21st century caregiving plan uh, to invest in the care economy for the 21st century as part of its economic agenda. Um, and it's the first time, really, 
that their, a presidential campaign made investments in the care economy a core part of its economic agenda. Not the women's agenda, not the work-family balance agenda, the economic agenda because of the understanding of its fundamental nature in our economy and the need to invest in it like infrastructure, right? We think about yes, infrastructure. It's, like a human infrastructure it's a human infrastructure. It's like if infrastructure is all that enables commerce and prosperity and our economy to function, what could be more fundamental than caregiving? Child yeah. access to childcare, access to elder care, support for people with disabilities. That is essential infrastructure that we've never ever invested in, which is why we have all these black and brown women who are working in jobs where they can't survive, trying to live off of $17,000 a year without health care. And so there is actually a plan that the president elect announced during his campaign to make caregiving jobs, living wage jobs with benefits and a union, and to expand access to childcare and long-term services in the home, in the community, really big deal. But I also wanna say that this is actually just a step. Like yeah, our like this big, doesn't do the trick. I mean, it'd be a tremendous that's step right. forward. But it, it would be a up. huge game changer. I mean, oh my God. But um, our big vision is something we call universal family care. I don't know if I've ever shared this idea with you, Andrew, but the idea is that one day we should have a fund that we all contribute to, that we can all benefit from, that helps us pay for childcare, long-term care, and paid family leave. Basically everything we need to take care of our families while we're working across the lifespan. It's like and a new version of social security. It is, exactly. And it, it is the perfect thing for social insurance because social insurance works best when there's a really large risk pool. This would be the largest pool in history because it would be all of us. We all need care. Um, and, um, and it would make care so much more affordable and we could actually innovate and make the jobs better. And we could do so much because we would be investing in our caregiving systems as infrastructure for the 21st century. So that's- what I love this so toward. much. So this is the Universal Family Care Fund. Is that like the, mm -hmm. the name? We just call it Universal Family Care. Universal Family Care. I am mm -hmm. on board, which is probably shocking Yay! to nobody. <laughs> oh, really? Because I mean, you know, I mean, I've obviously been uh, saying we need to uh, humanize the economy and put money yeah. into people's hands so we can do uh, what we need. And the caregiving economy gets ignored by the market economy a whole lot of the time. That's um, right. And, and so what, what's been happening for years is just there are these folks who've uh, been doing it because, you know, of a, of a variety of reasons, but it, it's uh, getting worse and worse for them. You know, and like you, you, you can see it in some like the most basic things. I have a perspective on this that, you know, others may not agree with, but um, you can see it very clearly in the fact that just people are having fewer kids. You know, you look up and mm -hmm. be like, hey, guess what? Like, you know, we're in this like punitive economy where everyone's just uh, having to grind out like, uh, you know, subsistence living. And so people are like, well, you know, we can't have kids under these circumstances. And so you have, you have just like fewer people. Uh, making that move and then if you do have kids then it turns out the resources aren't there <laughs> you know like when you get there and you're like wait what does daycare cost what's going on um, well then you have covid where 
<laughs> and I actually want to talk to you about COVID and automation because I'm curious on your take on it. If um, COVID's going to accelerate the worst aspects of automation? Oh yeah, already done. Right. That's what I. That's what I. Yeah. That's what I've been afraid of. But um, ten years you know, and ten weeks is what I've been saying, Ijen. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we've gone through ten years and ten weeks. This took took the timeline and just like accelerated it very very quickly. Um, and half of companies came out and said we're investing more in automation uh, because it just makes business sense. Um, so you're seeing a lot of companies that were on the border just committing. Uh, mm. You know, you like 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 Sam's Club came out and said all of their locations will be cleaned by robots. Uh, Tyson Foods said that they're going to replace meatpacking workers with robots. Uh, Google said that they have AI that can do the work of call center workers. That would have happened anyway. That probably is COVID independent. <laughs> but but the other two things were COVID related. Well, the thing also that um, my economist friend Larry Katz at Harvard explained to me is that some of the I mean, automation has always been a part of our lives, right? Always. But the some of the the resilience that we've seen in our economy has to do with the length of time that we have to actually see yeah, how you, you some can make tech advances create and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, and over like and create period. new jobs that you can't foresee, right? And so that some some technological advances do create new. Um, jobs, yeah. right? But that happens through time. And when you have an accelerated time frame for automation, like th- what happened with COVID, there's not enough time for the resilience piece to work itself out. Yes. Kind of what- yeah, it makes me very, very concerned and scared, honestly. Uh, it's like I have a sense as to um, what COVID has done uh, to workers. It's been catastrophic and our legislators haven't really responded to it uh, meaningfully in the right ways at all since march for sure i can't believe we still don't have an essential workers bill of rights i i just i can't believe it so you've gotten me very excited about the fact that joe and kamala proposed this plan um on the campaign uh and so i'd imagine that this plan requires legislation uh is that accurate yeah. I mean, it's it it requires action on the part of Congress. So it can be done through budget reconciliation. But it does need action on the part of Congress and champions in Congress and um, and a real push, a real mandate from people. Um, and so that's what we've been trying to organize. I've been really focused on rallying all the troops, the caregivers, the older people who need care, um, people who are in need of childcare and long-term care coming together. Um, we actually have a whole group, a coalition we call the Care Infrastructure Table, where childcare advocates, paid leave advocates, and long-term care advocates are all working together to try to make the caregiving plan a reality. Well, what is the uh, saying? It's like, we're all either uh, caregivers now, yeah. or will or will need a Roslyn caregiver. Will be a caregiver, yeah. It's like there mm-hmm. were like, like only four categories. I think it's either yep. like, yeah, but um, you probably know the saying. I just mangled it. Go ahead. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, former First Lady Roslyn Carter, one of our best advocates for family caregivers, she says that there's only four kinds of people in the world: people who are caregivers or will be caregivers, people who need care or will need care. 
And my addition to that is that usually we're more than one of those categories at any given moment. Um, most of us are receiving care of some sort and providing it in some way or another. And we ha have very little support in order to do that. And it's such an important part of our lives. The big yes. breakthrough on caregiving in the COVID crisis, though, is that we used to see caregiving as this like personal individual responsibility. And if you couldn't figure out how to afford childcare or how to manage long-term care for your parent, it's because you failed, you suck. Like you're a bad parent or you're a bad daughter. And what COVID taught us is that this is actually a huge challenge that requires a collective public policy solution. Yes. You know, and that COVID hopefully, COVID hopefully has just put to rest a lot of the bullshit. That, that's like the only kind of silver lining I can kind of try and take solace in. Um, because there, there's been a lot of like, well, it must be your fault. And then now it's like, is it really the bartender's fault that they don't have a job right now? You know, it's like, <laughs> like it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Very well said. Put to rest a lot of the bullshit. I like that. I hope so. And then I hope we respond appropriately legislatively. It's why I'm here in, in Georgia. And it's why that you are doing the work you're doing um, in Georgia to help uh, or your, your organization. Um, so yep. if someone wanted to help you and your work help organize for uh, caregivers in a more human-centered economy, like what's the place that you would direct them to if they wanted to put um, time, resources, money? Careinaction.us is our URL. Um, that's careinaction.us. And there are volunteer opportunities. You can always donate and support. Um, and, um, and we're really well connected in Georgia to all of the organizations who are working on organizing, building power, making change in Georgia year round, and this election in particular, and the Senate runoff. And there's a coalition of groups called Georgia Engage that is working on mobilizing voters um, to make sure that um, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock win. And for your API listeners, there's a special Asian American Advocacy Fund and they have a pack and they have a brilliant plan to turn out API voters in Georgia for the special elections and 4.7% of Georgia voters just let me throw it out there. Exactly. <laughs> it's huge. We can really make the difference here. And so um, if you want to support them, it's Asians, um, Asians for Georgia. They're doing amazing work in our community. Well, you're doing amazing work for all of us, iGen. Thank you for everything you've done. I, it's truly inspiring to me to see someone um, that I have so much in common with that has made the choices and impact that you've made. Uh, like I, I find myself to be something of uh, an unintentional activist, I suppose. Like I, I see myself as a problem solver and then I realize that the biggest problems uh, are bearing down on us that require... Uh, an invigorated public sector in a way that it has not been. Um, and so I, you know, ran for president and did a bunch of other things, but you've been doing <laughs> small the, things. The, the, <laughs> I, know. I, know, I mean, but, but genuinely still like it, it struck me. I was like, well, this is like the only logical way to try and solve this stuff. Um, uh, and, but you've been doing the work uh, in such like a genuine selfless human way for decades. Um, and uh you know, I, I'm so glad that you see opportunities for uh, your work to actually come to fruition in the next number 
of days and weeks because we really need you to win. You know, talk about your win when you were 22 or whatever. Like, we need you to win now. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, much, much bigger. Uh, you know, much more so than even then. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, no. My big slogan for 2020 is winning is self-care. So... I'll take it. Self-care. <laughs> yes, exactly. And look, I really, really appreciate you and all of the ways that you have courageously stepped up and stepped forward. And I mean, the ambition of having big ideas for solving big problems and then doing big things like run for president. I just love it. Oh, and thank you. I think it's thank awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it, Ijen. Yeah. Um, it's well thank you uh, i'm just grateful to my wife every day for putting up with, <laughs> with, with, with um my being gone all that time and um you know uh, uh so but thank you it really means a lot to me coming from someone like you well more soon let's do some stuff together let's win georgia and thank you for being there and then um and then let's do more. Let's win the care agenda. Let's end poverty. Let's do universal family care. Let's and do it. Universal, universal family, family care. care. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would love to team up with you. Anything I can do to be helpful, uh, for sure, Ijen. You're a champion for humanity. That's the way I'd see you. Uh, Thank and, you so uh, much. Yeah, thrilled to be connected. Mm -hmm.